Uh, kind of like a new mini-series on the Wednesdays, um, you know, how we like to actually do a series on the Sundays and a series on the Wednesdays also. Uh, we are under the, the umbrella, if you like, of Bible stories this month. Um, and Pastor Philip knocked it out of the park on Sunday night. What a powerful, powerful message that was. I was here for both services and I still didn't keep up with him uh, on all the notes, so I'll be listening to that uh, yet again on the podcast just to fill out my notes. Uh, but it was a very, very powerful message. So we're doing Bible studies and Bible stories on the Sunday. And we're looking at that in uh, a way, we, you know, some of these stories you will know, uh, but what we're doing is really trying to look at it with fresh eyes. And we always recommend that you do that. You know, uh, the God's Word is a living Word. What does that mean? It's always changing. It's organic. And what you'll find is, is during the course of your lifetime, you'll read the same scriptures, you'll hear the same stories, and they'll have a different impact upon you. So that's what we're doing on Sundays. We're looking at specific Bible stories. And on Wednesdays, what we're going to be doing is looking at parables. We're going to be looking at uh, some of the parables which Jesus taught. We'll be looking at them uh, every Wednesday during the course of this month. Uh, I'm speaking, obviously, this evening. Uh, over the course of the next two or three weeks, we've got two uh, guest speakers coming in as well. And I can assure you, you are not going to want to miss those guys. Uh, we're really looking forward to uh, hosting them and having them come and teach. So we're really looking forward to that. So tonight, as I said, we're looking at uh, parables, okay? Parables that Jesus uh, has taught. And this evening, we're going to be looking through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so I'll be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, if you read through the Gospels in the Bible, and the Gospels, in case you don't know, they're the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read through those Gospels, which give you the story of Jesus Christ from different perspectives... In each of those books, there are some stories which are spoken about in more than one of those books, but they're all written from a different perspective dependent on the author. Um, But those you will find throughout uh, the course of those Gospels uh, what an amazing teacher Jesus Christ was, okay? An incredible teacher. He was an incredible teacher because of the man that he was. He was an incredible teacher because he was warm, he was loving, he was compassionate. He had, obviously, everybody's interest at heart. And I would imagine that he had a very magnetic personality. I would imagine we all, we've all got someone that we know that you just love to be around. You don't even have to be speaking with them. You just enjoy being with them. They have a, a good, positive energy about them. And I would imagine that Jesus Christ uh, was exactly that way. So a very magnetic, uh, compassionate man. So that made him a very, very good teacher. But over and above that, the way that he taught also was just incredible. And if you look at it in detail, he taught in such an incredibly and deliberately relatable way. 
He spoke in these parables, which are stories. And frankly, we can look at the parables now, and they can be a, a, a little confusing to us, if you like. But at that time when he was speaking, all of the things that he spoke about related exactly to the lives of the people that he was teaching. So he was deliberately relatable to people. He taught them using language that the people uh, he was speaking to would understand. He didn't blind people uh, with technicalities. And he didn't try to impress people uh, with how much he knew, which is probably a good thing because he knew everything. Okay, uh, So it would have been a little bit mind-blowing. But he taught mostly by telling stories. And that's effectively what a parable is. In its simplest form, a parable is a story. And these stories are current at the time of Jesus Christ. And they spoke of people and of time and events that, as I said, everybody that he was speaking to would be able to relate to. And also, uh, you know, we need sometimes to look at things, as I said, in a deeper fashion. We need to peel back the layers of these parables because... Whilst they were relatable at that point in time, you know, 2,000 years later, it can sometimes be that we miss the point, okay? So this is why what I would say to you is, and I always encourage you to do this, particularly if we're actually looking at Scripture, which may well be known to you. You know, there are many people in here that haven't heard the story of the Good Samaritan. What I don't want you to do is switch off. I don't want you to think, oh, I know that story. I've heard that story, you know, 50 times, 60 times. I've heard it preached several times from different directions, so I know it inside and out. I really don't want you to do that. I really want you to just wipe the slate clean, and I want you to look at this, because we're going to come at this from a different direction, and I really am going to dig deep into this parable, and hopefully I'm going to uncover some things to you which you haven't actually looked at or realized before. So please, just pay attention as we're going through this. Okay, and as I said, don't switch off just because you think that you know the story. So we are going to look in detail at this Good Samaritan parable. Um, And let me give you a key point, and I want you to carry this key point through uh, this whole message with you. Okay, this key point I want you to be dwelling on and stewing on this as we're going through. Okay, and I'm going to wrap this up and tie this up at the end. But my hope is, uh, by the end of the message, that you'll see that this is not just in the story, but this is also something that you can apply to in your own life, okay? So here's the thought I want you to have in the back of your mind as we go through this story. One act of kindness in someone's time of need can completely change their life. Let me read that again. One act of kindness in someone's time of need can completely change their life. Okay, so the parable. Let's turn in your Bibles, uh, switch to your iPhones, however it is that you do it, uh, to Luke chapter 10. Okay, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be reading through. And I'm going to read through the whole parable, verses 25 to 37, and then we're going to go back over it and we're going to break it down and we're going to look at these parts in detail. Okay, and the reason for that is I want to give the overview just for those people who don't know the parable, uh, just so that we can cover it and, and they, they know the gist of the story. Okay, so <clears throat> here we go. Verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said... Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, so that's the story. That's what we've probably all heard from Sunday school moving forward. And what you've probably been taught on that so far, and what is quite easy to glean from that parable, is simply this. Let's be nice to people. Fair to say, that message comes across kind of loud and clear. Not just be nice to people, but just be nice to people, whoever it is that they are, and whatever the circumstances are. So when you see somebody in need, help them. Okay, Many, many times, people who don't even know the Bible will relate to the Good Samaritan. If somebody uh, helps them out and they don't know the full story, they will still say, oh, well, I had a Good Samaritan help me today, Okay, because they have a grasp on that part of it. So that's something that we can learn, which is very important, and I'll be coming back to that. But there's more to the parable than that. So let's go back and look at these parts of the Scripture in detail just to see what we can actually pull from this story to apply to our own lives, okay? So we're going to go back to this first part of the scripture, verses 25 through 28, and it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. So let's set the scene for where and when this is actually happening because the context of this is key. It's key to the message because Jesus is preaching, as I said, in a relatable fashion to the people who are with him at that point in time. And so he is delivering a message that we need to understand. And to understand it fully, we need to know the context in which he's actually teaching. It's in Luke chapter 10, the last time I actually preached, we were speaking about Mary and Martha and the fact that Jesus had left Galilee. Now this passage of scripture is directly before the passage that we spoke about last time I preached on Mary and Martha. So the same thing obviously applies, it's the same time frame. Jesus has just left Galilee, he's come down through Samaria, the 72 disciples that he sent out went before him to actually uh, pave the way, so to speak, uh, and to introduce people to the concept of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And Jesus is now uh, down towards Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, and he is preaching and teaching as he goes. And he's bringing with him a message of repentance and forgiveness, which is the message that we all should be looking to basically teach to people who need to come to Christ. It's a message of repentance and forgiveness. So he's teaching this, and he's with a group of people now, some of whom at least are knowledgeable in the Scriptures. Because again, people in this time, a lot of the Jews, were very, very knowledgeable of the Scripture, of what we would look at as being the Old Testament, okay? God's Word. They were very, very knowledgeable. But we're not told if they've all yet accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So he's teaching to a group of people, some of whom will know the Scriptures, some of whom may or may not have already been told by the the 72 about Jesus Christ. So a lawyer stands up and tests him. 
Okay? Now, whenever I hear anything in the Bible about somebody testing God or testing Jesus, it makes me smile a little bit. Okay? It just makes me just want to think, what, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? I mean, it's easy now because we know of Jesus. But to actually stand up at the creator of the universe and deliberately test him, it's a bit comical. All right? but, so this lawyer stands up and do it. Now, the word lawyer here is not describing what we know a lawyer to be. This man is not an attorney. He is not somebody uh, that they would go to uh, if they had a cart accident, okay? Or if there was something that they needed some form of advice on. Uh, It wouldn't go to this attorney. Uh, It's not an attorney. This lawyer, the word lawyer here, is to basically call somebody who is an expert in the law, okay? In other words, law with a capital L. In other words, an expert in the scriptures. This man is a teacher of what we would now consider to be the Old Testament, so this man is an expert in God's word, okay? So he is an expert in the scriptural law, not in civil law, okay? So if he was a lawyer attorney, it would be civil law, but he is a lawyer as in a teacher of the law of Moses, if you will, okay? So this is somebody, he obviously feels qualified to test Jesus Christ, he feels qualified to see if he can catch Jesus Christ out. Okay? He may be testing to see whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah. Because obviously the Messiah is going to know all the answers there are to know about the Scriptures. So he's approaching him and he's testing. But my guess to this, and it is just a guess on my part, but I believe that he is probably just flexing his knowledgeable muscle. He is just trying to show Jesus Christ that he knows what he's talking about. And he's also trying to show Jesus Christ as well that not only does he know all the ins and outs of the law, but also that he's living by it, that he's following by it. So he's somebody who believes that he is justified and that he is living a righteous life. And he's trying to confirm uh, what he needed to know. He's actually confirming this with Jesus Christ, okay? So Jesus has basically... Uh, asked the question, okay, sorry, in answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the guy has gone up to him and said, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer in, in verse 26 says this, does Jesus say to the guy, this lawyer has come up to him and said, what do I need to do to actually receive eternal life? Has Jesus turned around and said to him, well, what you need to do is uh, accept me into your heart? Has he said to him, you need, you need to love me because I will love you? He hasn't said any of those things. He hasn't said to him, uh, you know, just trust in me. He hasn't said, I am the way. What he's done is direct him directly straight back to the law again. He has said to him, what is it that you uh, read in the law? How are you reading it? What is written in the law, okay, which is the capital L, so in other words, he's saying, what do you read? How, what do you know from the Old Testament? Here you are coming to me and testing me. Here you are coming to me and asking me uh, how to get eternal life when you think that you know what the answer is. So tell me, what is it that the Old Testament says? Okay, in everything that you've read about what God expects from the human race, what is it that you have learned? Okay? And the teacher of the law uh, gives a summary of what he knows the teaching of the law of Moses to say about what God requires from us. So the lawyer says to Jesus Christ, he says, You shall love the Lord God, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He's pulled that directly from the book of Deuteronomy. So that is a scripture that he is quoting. He then says, And 
love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus. So the guy is quoted from Deuteronomy, the guy is quoted from Leviticus, the guy is quoted directly from the old scripture, and he's basically said that that is what a summary of the whole of the Old Testament is. If I love my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength and all of my mind, and I love other people, I love my neighbor as myself, then I have fulfilled the law, and therefore I will inherit eternal life. That's what he's saying. Okay, so that's his summary right there. Now, he's given us a summary of what he considers to be what God expects from each and every one of us as regards our relationships. God has expectations of our relationships. God has an expectation of our vertical relationship. In other words, our relationship with him. He has expectations of what that should look like. And he has expectations of what our horizontal relationship should look like. Okay, what do I mean by that? Vertical relationship would be a relationship with God. Horizontal relationships are relationships with the people that are around us. Does that make sense? Now, they're two different things, and God expects us to treat them differently. He expects us to love him with all of our mind, with our heart, with our soul, and with our strength, completely and absolutely and first. That's what he expects. And once we've done that, he then expects us in our horizontal relationships to love everybody as we love ourselves. So that's the answer that this lawyer feeling very clever about himself, I'm sure, actually gives to Jesus Christ. So what Jesus says to that is, you are answered correctly. Okay, He said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So, it sounds like Jesus has given the guy a pat on the back and said, that's right, well done. Okay, And to the first part of it, he has. He said, well done. That's exactly what the scripture says about doing it. But there's a comma. And then he says, do this and you will live. So because he knows what to do, he's not going to grant him eternal life. Knowing what God wants from us in our relationship with him and our relationship with other people is not going to give this lawyer eternal life. He says, well done, you know what to do. Comma, do it and you will have eternal life. So it's one thing to know what we're supposed to do. But knowing what we're supposed to do and not doing it is not going to give us eternal life. And that's a key factor of this parable. Something you may or you may not have lifted out of this parable before. In fact, I will go as far to say that that statement, what what Jesus is saying to, to this lawyer, is the whole thrust of this parable. It's not about do nice for your neighbors. It's about know what to do, but do it. Okay? So he said that to the guy. So, you've answered rightly, as I said. It simply means that he's acknowledging that the guy knows his facts. Okay? That he knows the summary of the law. But Jesus then says, do this and you will live. Meaning, as I said, that he has to go and follow through. We can't know what to do and not do it and expect all of the benefits that will come by doing both things. Okay, so Jesus has himself answered the man's question. And the lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has not said, follow me. He has not said, accept me into your heart. He has said, do this. Okay, and let's do what? Firstly, he said 
Love God with all your heart, your soul, strength, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't simply talk about grace and mercy. He doesn't say, the lawyer comes to Jesus Christ and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, join my team. He doesn't say, follow me and come with these other guys here. He doesn't say, thanks for asking, just by asking, that's it, you're granted eternal life. He gives him things which need to be done. So we see here a very important part of helping people to inherit eternal life. In other words, to becoming saved. What Jesus is doing here is steering this man toward something that we need to steer people towards as well that don't know Christ. We have to, have to, when we're speaking to people about a relationship with Christ, we first have to come to grips with the problem of sin. Stay with me. I will explain this as we're going through. The way to do that is to, set, is to get the standards of God, what it is that God's expecting from us, the law of God, the expectations of God, the holy requirements of God, and we have to put them before people and say, this is all you have to do. So all of the requirements of the law, we can look at those things and we can lay them out in front of people and say, to, to earn eternal life, to earn eternal life, all you have to do is everything that God's asking you to do in the Old Testament. That's all you have to do. So this man has come and asked the question that we hope and pray people will come to us with. I pray that lots of people come to me and say, how do I get to inherit eternal life? That's my prayer. I pray that people will come to me and ask how they can actually achieve eternal life. But he's asked it, this guy has asked the question thinking... He's already doing what's required. He's thinking that he is already qualified. He's thinking he's already earned eternal life, and he's just gone to Jesus, expecting Jesus to rubber stamp it. Okay? Now, in the meantime, this guy's asking the question. He's asked the question and been given the answer. He's answered the question himself and said, not only do I have to love God the way that God expects me to love, but I have to love my neighbors as I love myself. I have to love my neighbor the way I love myself. And he's not alone. He's in a group of people. And all these people are probably sat around now watching this guy who's probably carrying himself quite arrogantly. He's probably feeling good about himself, as I said. But whilst he's saying these words, these people who know him are probably speaking and whispering to each other and saying, well, he doesn't treat people the way that he should do. He doesn't treat everybody. I saw him last week with that guy, you know, screaming him out in the the car park for not putting his trolley away, okay? Whatever it might be, he's, he's, but he has had witnesses. These people, his friends, the people he hangs out and associates with, they're pointing at him and saying, hang on, I know that he does not fulfill that law. He does not treat everyone around him like he loves himself, okay? So then, let's move on, okay? Stay with me, okay? I know this is all over the place, but forgive me for that, but we will get to the point. All right, so in verse 29, Okay, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the lawyer is wanting to justify himself and clarify that what he is doing is enough. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say to Jesus, well, I'm doing, I'm doing enough. I do all of that, okay? That the people that he is loving is sufficient. In other words, he's saying, give me some parameters 
on who my neighbour is. I mean, Jesus, surely that can't include everybody. Surely that doesn't include everybody. And that's where Jesus starts his story. Okay? He immediately responds by not just saying to him, yes, I do mean everybody. He doesn't say that. He goes straight into his story and he explains it in the form of a parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now again, context. Everybody that has sat right there are right near Jerusalem. They know exactly where it is that he's talking about. They're talking, he's talking to them about a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. The trip from Jerusalem to Jericho will be 17 miles. It would basically drop the equivalent of 3,000 feet. Okay, so it's a very up and down journey, but plummeting basically over the course of that 17 miles. It's a very, very windy road that's actually on the way down, a mountainous road, a treacherous road. And on the way down through this road, along the side of the mountains, along the side of the actual road there, there are dips, there are craters, there are caves in the side of the actual roadway. And within these caves and within these crooks, there would be thieves would hang out there. Okay, They would hang out and just wait for travelers to go by and jump them. Every person that's there listening to Jesus speak knows that. They would know the road. They've probably traveled it themselves a few times. Who knows? One or two of them them may have actually been robbed along there. But this is why, as I said, context is so important. He's teaching in a way which these people can completely understand. So they know how dangerous it is. So, the man fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So they beat him. They beat the guy. They steal everything that's on him. They take probably his animals. He was probably on a donkey, a horse. Maybe had both carrying his uh, baggage and stuff. And they just took him. And they left, they left him to die. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So this is a priest, and again, context. In this day and age, a priest was top of the ranking. A priest was supreme. He was held in incredibly high regard. He was looked upon as somebody who was holy. And this guy would have been based in Jerusalem. He would be working in the temple. He would be leading the temple, so to speak. He was revered. And anyone could expect him, and would expect him, to be completely compassionate. Because this guy, as I said, is a holy guy. If anybody could be expected to be compassionate, it would be him. But no. In the cold light of day when there's nobody around, the guy is lying beaten and bloody with nothing around him. Everything's been stolen from him. What does the priest do? Crosses over to the other side of the road and keeps walking. Now, we're not told why. And there are lots of theories about why. And there'll be lots of preachers that would be able to build a story around it and explain why they thought he actually did it. But there's no uh, definitive explanation in the Bible. All we know is he didn't. He didn't stop. He wasn't going to get involved. Okay, so then likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds. Pouring, an oil, uh, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So then a Levite comes by. Again, in society, a Levite, very highly thought of, in very high regard. In fact, every priest was a Levite. Okay? Not every Levite was a priest, but if you were going to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. So that was an elite tribe okay, of people. Uh, so again, 
you know, people would expect, have certain expectations of this Levite. Look at it this way, if you like. Let's imagine that the priest is a pastor of a church and the Levite is on the church staff. That's kind of how it would be looked upon. So again, you would expect the Levite to stop and to help this poor guy out. Instead, he crosses a road and he walks over and walks by again. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. The Samaritan. Now again, through your Bible, uh, classes that you might have taken, okay, whatever, your your studies, what you know about the Good Samaritan, you may well know that the Samaritans are not particularly liked. You would, you maybe know uh, that the Samaritans, as I said, they're, they're not loved by everybody and they're certainly not held in the same high regard as a Levite is. Let me tell you the context of this again and let me let you know exactly how a Samaritan was looked upon. Okay. This is the thrust, as I said, of the parable. The people that Jesus was telling this parable to, the lawyer that Jesus was telling this parable to, would fully understand what a Samaritan was because they lived alongside them. There's absolutely a hierarchy in that time of tribes, of statuses, if you like, of social groups. And Samaritans were as far down the list as you can get. So they're the opposite end of the priests. Even within Jews, there was a form of hierarchy. Okay? If you had a Jew that was teaching the law, in, and again, capital L, teaching scripture uh, in Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Judea, they would look down their noses at other Jews who were living in Galilee, okay, which is in northern Judea. So even amongst the Jews, there was this hierarchy and there was this snobbery, if you like. I mean, if you are a Jew living in Jerusalem, teaching the old scripture, that's it. I mean, you are top of the tree. And you are looking down on everybody else, including other Jews. Now, between Jerusalem and Galilee, you have the land which is basically known as Samaria. And in Samaria lived the Samaritans. And they were despised, literally despised. And the reason they were despised is, is pretty much this. In the 8th century BC, they were actually defeated by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians took over that strip of land there. And the uh, Samaritans, they're basically the ten northern tribes of Judea. And what they did effectively is hand over themselves to the Assyrians. They waved the white flag. They accepted them into the ranks. They intermarried and had children uh, with the Assyrians. So what it basically meant was that the Jews looked down upon them worse than being a Gentile. A Gentile is somebody who wasn't a Jew. They looked on them worse than a Gentile. Why? Because the way that they saw it was quite simply this. A Samaritan had willingly given up the sacred bloodline of Abraham. They had basically intermarried with Gentiles, and they were now in a position where they were the lowest of the low. So here is this guy. Everybody hated. Everybody looked down upon, and everybody thought nothing of. Three words in verse 34. He had compassion. He had compassion. He had compassion that the other two did not have. And then, he basically took the oil, he took the wine, he poured the wine on the wounds. The wine, because of the alcohol, would be like an antiseptic. The oil that he was carrying would have acted like a balm and basically would have helped to actually heal it. He put him on the back of his own donkey, he took him to an inn, and he didn't just drop the guy off and say, help him out if you can do. He actually stayed with him. 
Now, this Samaritan's plans, I'm pretty sure, didn't involve picking up a guy half dead, putting him on his donkey, going to a hotel and staying the night. His plan was probably to shoot straight past that hotel and get to where he was going. But that's not what he did. He saw the guy, he helped the guy, he took the guy to the inn, stayed with him overnight, okay? And then on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. One denarius is basically a day's wages, okay? So basically a day's wages. He took two of them, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. That right there, extraordinary sacrifice. He has gone above and beyond. He was going above and beyond just taking the guy to an inn. But to stay there and look after him and then say to the innkeeper, here's 200 bucks, okay, look after him. And then if you need to spend any more more money, spend it. And when I come back this way, I will make it good with you. I will pay you whatever it is, okay? So, verse 36, Jesus then says to the lawyer, so which of these three, Mr. Teacher of the Law, do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the guy said, I think begrudgingly, he who showed mercy on him. And I'll tell you why I think begrudgingly. Because he didn't have the guts to say the Samaritan. He didn't want to say and admit the Samaritan. He just said the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So what's happening here is this. Jesus is setting out the standards that God has set for his people in the Old Testament. Jesus is showing what God expects under the law. He's actually saying to him, go and do the same. Go and, it's not enough to know that that's what you should do. Go and do it. And we have to do the same thing when we're speaking to non-Christians about how they can become a Christian. We have to be sensitive when we do it. Okay? We can talk to people about God's grace, about his mercy, and about his forgiveness. But unless we speak about why we need God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness, the rest of the gospel message means nothing at all. We don't like to do that, though. We like to speak about the nice stuff, but not, we don't want to speak about the not-so-nice stuff. And that's understandable. It's understandable, but it doesn't make it right. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about being unrighteous. We don't want to talk about being unworthy. We don't want to talk about guilt. And we certainly don't want to talk about God's judgment, about retribution, about punishment or hell. We want to be able to just say, Jesus loves you, and so do I. But the important thing is this. Jesus does love you. And so do I. But that's the solution that you need to a problem that we have to discuss to give the complete picture. What use is an answer if you don't know what the question is? What use is a solution if you don't know you have a problem? If we don't present God's holy standard in some way, if we don't let people know that they are falling short of the mark, they have absolutely no reason to accept the solution in their lives. And the lawyer in the parable is trying to justify himself in verse 29 because he thought that he was okay. He thought that he was doing well. He thought that he was doing all that was expected of him to gain eternal life. I know people like that. You know people like that. There are countless non-Christians out there who are genuinely convinced that they are going to heaven because they are nice people. You know people like that who are genuinely convinced they're going to heaven because they're nice people. They're convinced that they're qualified and that they come up to the mark. If people do not accept Christ as their saviour, 
from the problem that they have of falling short of God's holy expectations. They are just going to add Jesus to their list of friends, their list of go-tos, their list of gurus, and they will never surrender their lives and they will never understand or experience true salvation. They will not go to heaven, is what we're talking about. The problem with the people that you and I have around us is that they do not believe in Christ. When they do not believe in Christ is that they believe the way that the lawyer did in this parable. They do not feel like they are sinners. They do not believe that they have a problem with sin or that they are falling short of what God expects from them. We and they need to understand that one of the reasons for the rules of God existing is simply to show that people cannot live up to the rules of God. Now, I'm not saying go radical and go screaming at people, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. I'm not saying that. We have to be sensitive and we have to approach it in the right fashion. We have to attract people to Jesus Christ. But there are too many people who are trying to attract people to Jesus Christ as being some kind of lovey-dovey guy who loves absolutely everybody. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. You know, you, are, you will receive grace. You will receive mercy. You will receive forgiveness. He loves you. Just tell him you love him and everything will be fine. And that's not biblically correct. He loves everybody. He loves you. He loves you. But unless you actually turn to him as your saviour, you will not go to heaven. Your saviour, which implies what? It implies that he is going to save you from something. So unless you tell somebody what they need to be saved from, they are not going to want to join Jesus Christ and be saved. They're going to want to, as I said, add them onto, his, onto their Facebook friends list and just turn to him in times of trouble. We have to. Put it across to people what the situation is, okay? Look at this, Romans three nineteen and 20. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. The entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So we are, we are not able to fulfill all of the Lord's commands. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Without keeping the requirements of the law. Without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. <clears throat> we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. No matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So this is why we have to be sensitive. I cannot go up to somebody and say, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Because if I go up to them and say, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, it sounds like I'm not a sinner and I'm not going to hell. Okay? When the truth is this, you're a, sinner, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, I'm a sinner and I'm not going to hell. I'm a sinner and I'm not, why am I a sinner and I'm not going to hell? Because I have turned my life to Jesus Christ and I've accepted as my saviour, as my saviour. So we have to put it across to people in such a way that we relate to them. We relate to them and we explain to them who it was that we were, who it is that we are now, but because of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, we are redeemed. Is this all making sense? We have to, we have to let people know what the situation is that, it is that they need to be saved from. We have to let people know that none of us reach the mark. Okay? 
You take any amusement park. Take Disney. When I was a kid in England, there's a, there's a park called Alton Towers. Alton Towers was all the rage, and it was in the middle of the country, and it was like a, an hour and a half drive, and as kids, we all used to you know, bundle on a bus and go over there, and now compared to you know, Disney World and everything, I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, com- compared to Blue Bayou, it's embarrassing. That's how embarrassing it was. But I remember there's a couple of rides there in Alton Towers, and it's the same in every park that you go to. There's a height restriction, and you have to be 48 inches for example, to get onto a roller coaster, okay? Now, in every line, when you're standing there for an hour and a half and you're waiting to get on the ride, you know when you actually get there, at the start of the gate, there's a little pole thing, a a measuring rod, 48 inches. You need to be this tall, yes? How many times do you see the little kids come up to it and standing on tippy toes like this, okay? And the parents are there and they've got three kids, Two of them are like 49 inches and 55 inches, and one of them is 46. What are you going to do? No, none of you can go on there. No, you're going to say, yeah, you'll get on. Okay, and you're going to bring the little one on, aren't you? You're going to stand in line for an hour and a half, and then you're going to get to the the other end of the line, and there's going to be some spotty 16-year-old with a bow tie who's going to sit there and say, he's not tall enough. Okay, so you've just spent an hour and a half, and now you can't get on with any of them. So you've just wasted an hour and a half. Because why? Because you wanted little Johnny to reach the mark. You wanted him to actually reach the qualification. You wanted him to be tall enough. But the fact of the matter is, he wasn't tall enough. Now imagine there's a ride to get into heaven. And your entrance height to get into heaven is 248 inches. 248 inches. And there's a line of people all standing there wanting to get into this ride, to get into the gates of heaven. 248 inches. How many people qualify? None of us. Not one person. We all fall short of 248 inches. Now, there are two lines. There's one line where if you're convinced that you actually are 248 inches, or you're convinced that it doesn't matter if you're 248 inches or not, you're still going to get into heaven, you can stand in that line. Or there's another line. And in this line, you stand in this line, and as you get just before the gates of heaven, there's another room that you go into. And you walk into there, and then God miraculously will give you an addition to your legs, and you walk out of there 249 inches tall. Because you went in. But to get in that little room there, you have to say this. I'm a sinner. And I need a saviour. Then you get your operation and you walk out the door 249 inches and you walk through the gates of heaven. And you're waving at all those people in the other line who are there going, I'm tall enough. I'm tall enough. I make it. I qualify. That's who you're surrounded by in your life. You are surrounded by people who think that they are going to heaven. Think they are doing enough to actually get in through the gates of heaven. I know it's a very weird analogy, but hopefully that explains to you. We're all short. None of us are 248 inches unless we go to God and ask him to become our saviour. Okay? So this whole parable is to highlight to the lawyer that he doesn't measure up the way he thinks he does. That's the whole thrust of this. It's not just about being nice to people. It's to say, hang on, Mr. Lawyer, you don't know it all. You might know it all up here, 
but you're not applying it all. And if you're not applying it all, you don't qualify. And I'll tell you why you don't qualify. Because nobody does. Because nobody can actually fulfill the law. So the laws, one of the law's first purposes in those scriptures that we just read there is to highlight the fact that we all fall short. Okay? So the guy has said to, to Jesus Christ, he says, surely, he's saying between the lines, surely you don't expect me to love everybody as I love myself. I can't, that's impossible. Surely, you don't expect me to love everybody the way that I love myself. And Jesus says to him, yes, actually, I do expect that. Now, can you admit that you can't do that? Can you admit that that's not you? Can you admit that that is impossible for you to achieve? That's what he's saying to the lawyer, okay? So the parable is to show all of these unrighteous people, okay, which is all of us, that they in fact fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of the law. And just to qualify very, very quickly, again, without getting too overboard with stuff, when it talks about the law, there are certain people that may say to you, as you're having a conversation with them, they may say to you, well, the Old Testament doesn't, exist anymore. The Old Testament is irrelevant. That's the law. That doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore because of the New Covenant, because of the New Testament, okay? We don't live under the law anymore. Some people will use that for different things. They'll justify away what it is that they're doing. Oh, it doesn't matter if I do that because that's Old Testament. Some people will say it to you, well, you know, I don't tithe because that's in the Old Testament. And we're not under that law anymore because Jesus died on the cross. Let me tell you, there are three parts to the law. Three parts to the law in the Old Testament. The first is ceremonial. Ceremonial law, which you'll read through in all of the books like Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy. It will talk about ceremonial law. Circumcision is one of those things that came under ceremonial law. Okay? Ceremonial law is all about what God expected those people to do. You had to, when you gave a sacrifice, it had to be in a certain way, in a certain time frame, a certain animal. They were all ceremonial laws. Then you had civil laws, and civil laws were the laws of the time, of the place. So in every town, every city, every state, every country in the Old Testament, they had their own civil laws, some of which, again, are covered in the Bible. You then have moral law. Moral law is the Ten Commandments. Moral law is the way that God instructs us to conduct our lives. And let me tell you, moral law... It's carried right the way over through the new covenant. Civil law, ceremonial law, is not. But moral law is. So that's why we still have to look to the law. We still have to look to the Ten Commandments. We still have to live by what it is that God was asking us to do. Now, Pete, you're contradicting yourself. Because what you just said is, is nobody can live up to that. That's correct. Nobody can live up to that. So the first part of that law is to actually show us what it is that God expects from us and to highlight the fact that we can't do it. Okay? The second part of that law is after we have admitted the fact that we cannot achieve it, when we have asked Jesus Christ to become our saviour, when we are saved and have salvation, we have been given grace and mercy and forgiveness. The second purpose of the law is this, our sanctification. So we have salvation, which means we give our life to Christ and we are saved and we are going to heaven. We then spend the rest of our life being sanctified, which means what? It means we are improving. It means we are becoming more and more Christ-like. And how do we do that? We practice what it is that we know to do. We have the knowledge. We learn about what it is that's expected of us. And we do our utmost 
to fulfill it. Knowing two things. Firstly, we will never achieve it. And by knowing that, there's no guilt in missing the mark. There's no condemnation in missing the mark. And the second thing that we need to know is this. By missing the mark, it doesn't stop us from being saved. It doesn't mean by missing the mark, we're not going to heaven. Because that was in the salvation. Is this all making sense? This isn't even in my notes now. I'm freestyling. Which I don't need to be doing at three minutes past eight. Especially as I think pastors actually run in the nursery. Okay, put your hand up if you're in trouble tomorrow. Okay. All right, so it's all, all making sense though. This is the second area and the second reason that those, uh, that law is there. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Okay. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So the law is there to, as I said, highlight that we can't achieve it, but the law is also there to give us guidance as to what to do. Okay, so by applying the law and doing our best to achieve it, as I said, we can become more Christ-like. Jesus said, now go and do the same. So let's look at what the Samaritan did very, very quickly and see how we can go and do the same. Let's look at, quickly, four ways we should be helpful. Okay, which is what the Samaritan did. Number one, be unexpectedly helpful. Unexpectedly helpful. The Samaritan was the last person you would expect to help the guy that had been beaten and robbed. He's the last person. If you you had a row and and had to put odds on who was going to help, he would have been bottom of the pile. Nobody would have said he will do it. Okay, the fact that he did it was unexpected. So how can we be unexpectedly helpful? Do the same thing. Help somebody that would never expect you to be the one to help them. Okay? It says talk about, it talks about your neighbors. It doesn't mean your physical neighbors, but it might mean your physical neighbor. You see your neighbor in trouble one morning if they've got a flat tire on the car. Go across the road and help them out. Change the wheel for them. Do that. Be unexpected. You know, you may well go over there and they might, you, there may be something going on. They may have a flood, whatever it might be. Invite them into your home. Somebody's locked out of the house and it's 110 degrees outside. I've been there and done that. I wish somebody would come and invite me into their home. Okay, do that if you see somebody in that situation. Help them. Be the one that unexpectedly helps somebody. Okay, it will absolutely transform them. It will change them. Why? Well, because it's unexpected. Okay? It's unexpected. Help somebody out when they can't find help anywhere else. When they've called all of their family members and all of the family members have said no. When you've got the old boy who basically needs his grass cutting and his four sons are all too busy because they're watching LSU on a Saturday afternoon. Go cut his grass for him. Go the extra. Be unexpected in the way that you help people. It will then, it will open up opportunities for you. And I touched on this last time I preached. Open up opportunities for you. It will give you a hearing. It will enable you to speak about your faith. It might give you an opportunity to invite them along to church. Okay? It will give you those opportunities. Number two, be sincerely helpful. Be sincerely helpful. Okay? Verse 33, he had compassion. He had compassion. Some people will help out of a sense of duty because they feel that they have to do it. Okay, the Samaritan felt the need and desire to help. He had compassion. He didn't say he felt guilty and so he did it. He said he felt compassion. Now let me tell you this, and this is going to change some things up for you. The most effective way to have compassion for those people that you know who are non-Christians, 
who may be even somebody that you would class as an enemy. The most effective way to have compassion for those people is to pray for them. Pray for them. And you're not just praying for them in the ultimate prayer of their salvation. You're praying over them the same way that you would pray for somebody that you love. You are praying that they have a wonderfully blessed day. You are praying for their protection. You are not praying that their car breaks down just to teach them a lesson on the way to work. You are praying that their car makes it. You are praying good prayers for them. And that prayer, praying for somebody's needs, will give you compassion for their needs. And then when you see a need, you will try and fulfill that need. You will then feel the desire to help them in that moment of need. Not just praying, because when you're feeling compassion for somebody, you will actually put action behind that. If I'm praying for my next door neighbor because his dog is barking continually throughout the night and I've had two hours sleep in the last four weeks, and I'm praying for him that everything goes well for him, when his dog gets sick... I'm going to drive his dog to the vet so the vet can make it well so that it starts barking again tonight. That's how, by the way, that's not true life. My dog has, neighbor doesn't have a dog. Thank you, Lord. Okay, but compassion, okay, compassion. Number three, be personally helpful, be personally helpful. The Samaritan put the man on his own donkey. He took the time to actually take the guy to the inn. He stayed overnight with him. He involved himself. So be involved personally. Help someone when they would maybe expect you just to say, I'll pray for you. Praying for them is good. Praying for them and helping them is better. Pray for them, help them as well. Roll up your sleeves, get involved, ask them, okay? Somebody says to you, I'm going through this, I'm going through that. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for you. Say, I'm going to pray for you. What can I do to help you? How can I help you? They may turn around and say, well, you can't, but I really appreciate you asking. They may say, I just need you to do this. Can you possibly give me a lift just up the road? Whatever it might be. Okay, physically, spiritually, emotionally, give of yourself. Last one, be financially helpful. The Samaritan gave two denarii and then an open account. He gave two days wages to the guy. I don't know what your salary is, but imagine what two days of your wages is. Imagine just giving them to a stranger. Not just giving them to a stranger, but you're giving them to a stranger and then saying to somebody else, whatever he needs, pay for it, and I will settle settle the account when I come through next. Okay? Nothing will show an unbeliever more that you care about them than the fact that you care more about them than you do your bank account. Nothing will show them that you care more than helping them financially. Now, it's only obviously to the extent that you can. Don't cripple yourself financially. Don't give them what you don't have. But even if it's just a contribution, even if you're just making a contribution to something, okay, be prepared to help them in a monetary way. Non-Christians, people who do not believe, tend to put a high value on money and things because they don't know any better. So they'll put a high value on it, which means that you sacrificing some of what you have will impact them in a big way because they wouldn't want to do the same thing, okay? So all of this means not only that you are fulfilling what we're requested to do, but it will also put you in a position, as I said, where you'll have opportunity to speak to them about more important things. Opportunities to show people the hands and feet of Christ and make a difference in people's lives the way that you are called to do. So let's all of us, each and every one of us, go and do the same. Can you bow your heads for me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just love you so much and we thank you for who it is that you are, Lord. We thank you for every opportunity that we have just to 
learn from your word, to grow in your word, Father God. We just thank you for who it is that you are. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and your forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, for all things. I thank you for every person that's here. I pray your blessings be upon them, Lord God. I pray your protection around them. And I pray, Father God, that you will just touch them in a mighty way. We love you in this place. We adore you in this place. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. We would like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's word into effect. At Heart Seas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.